So cognac is definitely a spirit, okay? So cognac falls into the category of brandy, but not all brandies are cognac. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Fabulously Delicious is the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week we dive into a specific topic, a French dish, an ingredient or French cuisine cooking technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests are all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, talk right, or photograph it. But above all, they love it. I don't know about you, but cognac when I was growing up was something fancy that only parents on TV shows like Dynasty drank. Then I found French food and cooking and found that it was a wonderful ingredient in many recipes and also a spectacular one with that flame going off when you light it up to get rid of the alcohol but just leave the taste. So what is cognac? How's it made and who makes it? Well, today we are joined by a cognac maker that can fill us in on everything. So sit back, relax. If you're fancy enough, pour yourself a glass of cognac or just enjoy a glass of wine, coffee, tea. If you're listening whilst traveling on your way to work, maybe not have a cognac. Turn up the volume as you're in for a delicious episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app, and let's chat with Tres Petron. Therese Bertrand, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, I'm super excited. I hope I'm not going to be drunk by the end of it, though. I can't wait to talk all things cognac. I should be drinking some while we have Gosh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I give you lots of tips. It is 10 a.m. in the morning, so maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, but you know what? I'll tell you later a secret, but actually the early morning is the best time for tasting. Well, actually, it's funny you say that because I have noticed if you, when we go, us Australians go and have coffee, sometimes the French will go and have a, a little uh, spirit or a cognac or something like this. There you go. There's never a bad time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> They might be just getting off work. It might be their time. Yeah, uh, or a special celebration. Exactly. I wanted to find out a little bit more about yourself before we chat about all things cognac. And uh, the first question I had was, where did you grow up when you were a child? Because I, I understand it was in two countries. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So I was born in France and um, we stayed here just for the first few years. And then we moved back to Spain because my mother is originally from Spain. Well, I am my friend. I have the French nationality, but I am actually actually half Spanish. So my mother used to come here at the property to harvest by hand with her entire family. She's from the south of Spain. She's from Cordoba, uh, from a village which is called Pozo Blanco, and she came with her entire family here at the French my grandmother's property to harvest by hand. So that's how she met my father. So that's why I have. Half, I'm half French, half Spanish. What was the best thing then as a child about being half French and half Spanish? Well, you get to really like enjoy the best of both cultures. It was actually challenging because, you know, every time we would come to France and we used to come in the summers and help my grandmother do some of the bottling and things like that. Um, 
it would take us like two, two to three days to get our French back. But after the third day, like that's it, we were back fluid. And it, it, the same happened when we would go back to Spain. Um, so that was like the only challenging thing. But on the other hand, we got to enjoy, you know, the French uh, culture and the Spanish culture at the same time. But I mostly actually grew up in Spain. Um, and then when my grandfather died in the early 90s, uh, we moved back to France just for a couple of years to help my grandmother since she was alone with the vineyards. So I had to, I sort of uh, experienced a little bit the, a couple of years in the French schooling system, which we call les, le, le collège, which would be for, I don't know what would correspond for you in English, but um, it's like when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, basically. Okay, yeah. So in Australia, we have high school, but I think that they're all different all over. Yes. I think America is different in the, in the UK That's as right. well. That's right. So people often talk about, all the French do, the differences between the north, Paris, and south of France. You know, there's yes. uh, uh, all big kinds differences. of, you know, big differences in uh, the people. But from your experience then where your parents were and Spain, was it a similar aspect to to life or was it completely different is the spanish way of living different to the french way of living extremely different i think in france we have a, a certain way with some certain specific hours which are a bit more strict in terms of timing for eating you know they're, they're like more of a i think i consider the french more like a routine certain habits that will be repeated whereas the spanish level people sorry people leave like by the sun. <laughs> so it's if it's sunny outside and if it's nice, everybody's going to be out. It doesn't matter what you have to do. You're going to find the time to be out and have a coffee with a friend or have a, a drink in the evening, uh, no matter how hard you work during the day. Spanish people are people that live outside. They don't live like inside. Whereas here in France, sorry, in my area, um, because it's a countryside area, we, we, we live also outside in the summertime, but the wintertime is very much like a home experience where you cook a lot and you drink and you enjoy the time with the family and friends inside. From what I've heard, don't they eat dinner really late in Spain, like at 10 o'clock or something like that? Oh, the eating times? Yes, absolutely. They eat super late. For me, it's like I don't sort of enjoy eating so late because I'm more like a, I'm more French for that. I love my, yeah, I love, I love my kids to eat at a certain time. And, you know, I enjoy my free times, but it has to be after I eat, for example. I like to eat early in the evening because then I like to go for a walk and things like that. Whereas in Spain, you could be eating at 12 at night. Gosh. Yeah. It's like, you're almost like going to bed with a full belly. And that's like the sort of thing that I don't like, but, uh, but it's a different life. I think, I think it's good to, to take the, the best out of both. Uh, even though, you know, having, come back now that I'm back in France I think I think I consider myself a bit more French than Spanish I find it hard enough when we moved to France because Australian dinner time was seven o'clock so we would go to restaurants and they'd take our order but then nothing would come until eight o'clock and we were waiting for an hour but the kitchen didn't open until seven thirty. right <laughs> that's right we have the same problem when we go to Spain <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. But, um, so who cooked in your house when you were growing up? So my mom, mostly, definitely, 100% my mom. So my father would cook like one or two dishes because, you know, in Spain you have, in Spain and France, we had the influence a little bit of the Arabic food. 
Um, so my mom was very, very Spanish, you know, the Spanish sort of lentils, the Spanish sort of chickpeas, um, the Spanish omelet and things like that. And my father, um, um, from now and then would cook us like a tagine, which is very nice. And, uh, but it was mostly my mom, but she made, my mom is like my food hero because truly she made such a huge effort um, first to adapt the French culture and the Spanish culture into our food. And second, because she always had fresh vegetables, fresh food. She would always go to the market to get the fresh, the fresher fish possible, the fresher meat. She gave a lot of importance um, to the food she was cooking for her kids to grow and to give them the best, um, uh, the best, the best potential, right? To get all your vitamins in there. It was your grandparents' winery um, yes. that you, that you were working in as a child and coming back to, etc. How right. important was the relationship for food with their business, with the winery? Um, extremely important. Even though we don't make wine, we're more into uh, making cognac and Pinot de Charente, but. Um, our entire family has always been into food. Like my grandmother, I have extremely fond memories of my grandmother in her apron in the kitchen where you would just get close to it and the smell was absolutely amazing. And you'd think like, what is she cooking now? What is she doing now? And she would always make um, the traditional cannelés, but she would add cognac into that. So it would make it like a special cannelés. And then she would also cook a lot of uh, fish food. Like she would make the cookie Saint-Jacques with the bechamel sauce, bechamel and, and mushroom. Oh, my God. Just the smell of that, it just brings me back to my childhood. Fabulous. And always, always, always their little glass of wine. It didn't matter if it was white or red. She always had something. And then after the meal, we always had a tiny little bit of cognac. It wasn't a lot, but it was just enough to sort of finish the meal and have like a square of dark chocolate, for example. You mentioned before your mum was one of your is one of your food heroes. So, what was your favorite thing that your mum cooked? Um, uh, the Spanish omelet is like the best thing she ever makes. And even though a lot of people know how to do it, I can guarantee you that it takes years to make it into that level where you eat it and you're like, "Wow, this is amazing." Because I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> It took me a lot of effort and many years. And now we've got it like an ongoing competition because my husband tells me that my omelette is better than my mom's. <laughs> Are you adding a little maybe a French influence into your omelette? Actually, maybe? I caramelize my onions like I cook because omelettes, Spanish omelettes, they can have onions or not. And the onions is are going to add a little bit of a sweet flavor. And, you know, you always need some something acid, something salty and something sweet, right? Well, that sweetness is going to come a little bit from the onions. And I'll give you like a very small trick. When you cook the onions, you have to splash a little bit of sugar, but not a lot. And a little bit. And that makes the entire Spanish omelet like taste amazing. Okay, I'm going to try that. <laughs> Did you study at university, uh, school, etc., to be in the wine industry? No, I did not. So um, after finishing Spain and having lived in France for a couple of years after my grandfather died, um, I went back to Spain and then I decided to go to the UK, actually, for my studies. 
Um, my mom thought I was crazy at the time because none, none of my brother or sister were going anywhere. And she was like, but you're going so far. And in my mind, it was like, I looked at the map and I thought, well, the UK is actually very close. <laughs> so I decided to go to Bristol and I did a, um, a bachelor, what was it called? BA um, in uh, modern languages and European studies. Um, so we had like, uh, I did my major in economics, uh, but we also had like uh, English as a foreign language, which was very interesting at the time because that was a specific course for foreigners coming out of the UK. So it was an amazing thing for the British to have considered us um, as students and also considering English as a second language. So that was amazing. That was a, a great gift that the UK gave me at least. And I have amazing and fun memories of the UK. How many languages do you actually speak? So I speak Spanish and French as my firsts. Then I added my English. And then when I lived for a couple of years in Madrid, I worked for a Spanish um, marketing agency and we traveled a lot to Italy. So I started learning Italian. So I did speak Italian, but now it's very much reduced because I've not practiced it. But I absolutely love Italian and Italian food, of course. <laughs> but isn't Italian, sorry, Italian people, I'm about to say something that's offensive to you, but isn't Italian just French with an O on the end of everything? Uh, that's what I thought with the Spanish. Oh, is the Spanish the same? Well, it's, it's actually like a Spanish person and an Italian person can understand each other right? But there are a lot of fake families and fake friends. And some of the words, actually, you're talking about French. And yes, absolutely. Some of the words actually are similar to the French. But that's the problem. When you, when you speak French or Spanish and you're trying to speak Italian, my Spanish was taking over. So I was just putting the accent and thinking I was speaking Italian, but I was not. <laughs> I have to apologize to the Italians all the time, can I just say, because when we were there, I'll, all I do is speak French. I speak more French in Italy than I do here in France. Do you know what it is? It's your brain because yes. I have the same issue with, with my Spanish. Why the Spanish and not the French when I was speaking Italian, right? It's like your brain is actually connecting your last language or your closest language. I don't know. Uh, and making like some sort of connection. Uh, it's just a funny thing. Lovers of French food, wait no more, for I've got the French food cooking experience just for you. Come join me in Montmorillon for one or three day cooking classes that take in French markets as well as visit local food producers and lots of cooking and eating along the way. Book your class with me via andrewpriorfabulously.com. But hurry, as places are filling fast. Um, later on, you then studied wine. Why did you go on to study wine? Was that because you were going into the family business? So it actually happened uh, just um, reverse. What happened is um, I got married in 2009 and my brother had taken over the my grandparents' uh, cognac distillery uh, in 2007. And um, when we finished our honeymoon, Seth and I were coming uh, from Brazil. We looked at each other and we thought, mm, we need to be make be making our own thing or have our, our, our own business, right? And that's when we decided to join my brother because my brother was going to continue working on the vines, but he wasn't going to develop the family's uh, business brand. He was just going to do the most of the production and resell to one of the big brands. 
And we thought, oh, that's such a shame, right? We want to continue the tradition and being able to put our family's uh, heritage, cognac, into the bottle. And so we decided to move to France and to take over that side of the business. And that's when I, de I decided to just um, do a course to understand more about spirits and how they are drank and how um, to talk about them, how to communicate. So there was like a special course. There's a, a university here close to where we live, which is called l'Université des Spiritueux de Segonzac. And you study, study about spirits, but mostly about cognac, obviously. And so your husband, what was he in doing at the time? Did he then he get was, in um, So this is crazy. You're not going to believe it. But we actually met in Costa Rica. I traveled a lot. <laughs> we were both teachers at the time. I did many jobs in my life. I mean, just mentioned one. I probably did it. <laughs> Uh, we were teachers at the time and we met and uh, we fell in love and he was um, a physics and math teacher. So his background is more like as a physician and a mathematician. So when he came here to the cognac business, it was actually perfect because he learned how to distill and then he learned how to do the blending. So blending is putting together different cognacs in order to do a quality So it could be like a younger quality, an older quality. And once you do those blends, then you put them into a bottle, right? So he's extremely good at that because first he worked in restaurants. He was an amazing, he's an amazing chef. He loves food. And he also loves uh, wine in general and tastings and spirits. So without even knowing, he actually um, enjoy. he really enjoys his job now. I mean, it's one of those things, right? Life just brings you somewhere you never expected. It's a family business and you've got kids of your own now. Do you feel that, is there pressure? Like, was there pressure on you to get involved in the business yourself? And do you think that the kids will feel, that your kids will feel pressure to, to take over the family business? Oh my God, in the, in the region, there's a huge pressure, huge pressure. In my parents' um, generation, the pressure was even bigger. Um, but my parents never really took over. He came here several times to help my grandmother. but he And I think that pressure made him maybe not come back. Um, and I think if you take away that pressure, maybe you do it naturally. We never had, the grandchildren never had a lot of pressure until my grandmother turned 80. And she's like, right, I've done my best, guys. <laughs> Something's going to happen. It's either going to be sold or somebody needs to take over. And that's when my brother decided to come back. And then we came back to take the side of the bottling. But there was a little bit of pressure, but my decision was fully um, uh, free. Like we decided to come truly because we wanted to. And we had done everything before. We had traveled. We had done so many different jobs. And after you do that, those many different jobs and those many different travelings and you sort of realize that it's nice to have your own business. You enjoy and you value more uh, building your own business, building, working for your own brand and things like that. So if your kids fall in love with the, an Australian beer maker and want to move to Australia to make beer, you'll be okay with that. <laughs> I would be okay. I, I like Australians a lot. 
We're okay. We're okay. I love the accent. Uh, there's you. You guys have a lot of charm in general. There's a, a culture there which is amazing. And actually, I have my best friend who's married to an uh, an Australian who's coming to see me next week. So hey, oh, we'll be cheering. <laughs> right. You told me one of your food heroes is a chef that cooks uh, Basque cuisine. So that's uh, sort of coming from that Spanish influence there, etc. For those of us that don't know, where is the Basque region? So the Basque is the north of Spain, and uh, my one of my favorite places. You've got many different cities, but one of my favorite places that people really know a lot is San Sebastian. And in San Sebastian, you have the old town, and in the old town, you have all of these um, little restaurants that you go to, and you have the most amazing tapas um, with like fresh fish. It could be like squid. Um, you also have like the traditional Spanish omelets and things like that, but you get a little bit more of the spice, which is more from the Basque country versus the, the, the South of Spain is a, is not a, it doesn't have the culture of spicy food and you'll get a little bit of the piquillos, like a little bit of the spice, the red peppers in the, in the North of, Fra of Spain. And, um, I admire a lot a chef uh, whose name is Carlos Arguiñano because when I was growing up, my mom used to watch a lot of his shows. So it's like he's in my mind as my childhood, you know, sort of chef. But nowadays in France, where I live here, I've got also my local heroes. <laughs> well, who are your local heroes? Because I'd love to know who they are. But also, is there any, like, um, similarities in Basque food to French food, considering it's so close to the border there? Um, I think probably there will be similarities from uh, the Basque country to the south of France, which would probably be around Biarritz. Um, but otherwise, it's quite different. We don't have the same way to eat. The, the, the ingredients are quite different. No, there's not. For example, where I live, it's not that close to the Basque Uh, well, we're on three hours and a half to four hours drive, uh, but the culture and the food is quite different. Okay. And who were those food heroes that you were talking about? So it's it's my local. Um, so I live in a small village, which is called Réau-sur-Trèfle. And the next city, the next town next to it, which is five minutes drive, it's called Jean-Zac. And in Jean-Zac, we've got some few uh, little restaurants, which are quite amazing. One of them is called Comptoir du Marché, which is my local um, restaurant. And the chef, his name is uh, Xavier uh, Souletti. And he's, um, he has just this capacity to put anything together with simple ingredients. And when you look at the plate, you're like, wow, it look, just looks like a, a chef d'oeuvre, like an art. And it just tastes amazing. It's just amazing. And then we have another local restaurant, which is called Bistro Chez Loïc. And the, the, the guy, is, the chef, is called Loïc Pollet. And he has also an amazing talent with fresh fish and fresh meat and, like, vegetables and I don't know. It's just one of those two places, right? That you go and you know you're guaranteed to eat fresh, local, and, and really tasty food. Fabulous. So, what's the town called again? Jean Zac. Jean Zac. So, with Jean Zac, so you've got cognac there, you've got great food by the sounds of it That's as right. well. What, That's right. what else is there? Why should we go to that part of France? What, what so, can we so see? This part of France is the heart of the cognac region, right? So this cognac region has a delimited area, which we can talk about it later. And our region is very well known then for its cognac, also for its Pinot de Charente, 
which is a sweet aperitif that I can explain to you later. We also have local wine, local wineries, um, which is called Vin de Pays Charentais. And we've got a lot of just very tradition and local food. Um, we make butter in the region. We have the salt from the coast. We have um, a lot of foie gras. Um, we have saffron. We have a lot of honey, local honey. Uh, we even have our own flour. We have a lot of, our region is very well known for our windmills. And in fact, in fact, our brand uh, logo has a windmill on it because we exist since 1731 and we used to be windmillers. We used to make our own flour and our own um, um, walnut oil. But what would that area uh, be known for apart from cognac? What's, what's uh, another draw card, is it? I, I would definitely say cognac. For number first, number one. And actually the second one, I, I would say the oysters. Okay, right. Because okay. we are, so our area is Charente and Charente-Maritime and it goes towards the coast and we are very, very famous for our oysters. Uh, is Bordeaux in the same area? So, but we are part now of uh, Aquitaine, La Nouvelle Aquitaine. Uh, so, so that would be, you know, the same area. Big, we are now a big, big region. Uh, but in the old days, Bordeaux was considered like a bit separate. Um, we are very close to Bordeaux, though, though and we uh, acknowledge ourselves as being so close to them also, like culturally, um, because we're only one hour drive from Bordeaux. So we really are lucky in the situation we are because we have the coast in less than an hour. You have the cognac region with the beautiful vine hills and the little uh, amazing cognac houses with beautiful Charente um, maison, like houses with, with like these beautiful limestone. And, and then as you go towards Bordeaux, then you have the amazing wines and the other wineries. So we are really very well located in terms of tourism. Um, I think we were number two last year. Like we were really at the top. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, then please share it around with your friends, colleagues, family. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Oh, and leave a review. A five-star one would be great, especially because that will help me get more fabulous people for you to listen to and learn more from. So, don't forget, share me around with your friends and family. I love to be shared around. Now, let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. On to today's topic, cognac. First of all, can you explain what is cognac? Is it a wine? Is it a spirit? Is it a fortified wine? What exactly is it? So cognac is definitely a spirit, okay? So cognac falls into the category of brandy. That might be easier for people to understand, but not all brandies are cognac, right? So in order to be called cognac, it needs to be made from the AOC uh, protected area, uh, which uh, is mostly Charente and Charente Maritime. So in the region, I can say um, we are about 80,600 hectares of vines. So that's a lot. We represent a big um, sort of culture. And um, so imagine if you pick up the grapes, right? You're going to press the grapes. You're going to let those grapes ferment into a wine. We're going to then distill that wine. 
And once it's distilled, you obtain what we call eau de vie, which is 70% alcohol. And that eau de vie, we're going to then age in oak wood barrels, which will then become cognac. Do the French have brandy as well as cognac? Or are oh, they yeah, really just having cognac? So brandy can be made anywhere around the world. Uh, it's mostly made of grapes and then is distilled. So that's like the big, big lines, right? But cognac has um, very, very many different strict rules. And in order to make cognac, first, you need to be in this protected area. And then second, the second rule is the type of grape that you use. So in order to make cognac, um, you have to use this list of white grapes that you're only allowed uh, in order to make it. And the number one king of the, of the making of cognac is called Uniblanc, which is a relatively acidic uh, white grape, um, which is also naturally resistant to like sicknesses and things like that. And it, it has a high capacity of production because you lose a lot as you make the, when you go towards making the cognac, you lose, you lose a lot of volume. So you need to start with a lot. So that's why we use mostly Uniblanc for those different reasons. Then you have another one, which is called Colombard, which might be more familiar to you from making white wines in general. And then you have another one, which is called Folle Blanche. But 90% of the producers here in the region use Uniblanc because of the reasons that I just mentioned. And it's, a, it's perfect for making cognac. Uh, do they have to be a specific barrel? Like, does it have to be? Yes. It can't be in a stainless steel one. It has to be in a barrel. <laughs> so cognac um, has to be aged in oak wood barrels. Like that's like one of those strict rules, right? And usually we f we use um, French oak casks to age those um, those uh, cognacs. Uh, originally, it was from this area, or sort of close to here in Montmorillon, Vienna, the Limoges. Is that right? L limousine. limousine. Yes, yes. So you have different like forests that are well known for the, the quality of the wood, because we're talking about trees which are over a hundred years old. Like this is really, really important. So most of these trees would come from the Limousin region. Um, uh, but, but you have other forests now that are less famous, but also have amazing and good quality, um, amounts of, of trees. So it's all over France now. You mentioned before, Ode water of life, <laughs> water of life. So how does, where does that come from? Why is it called that? Um, that's a good question, actually. Ne nobody ever told me why it's called water of life, but I, I assume it's, First, because it's transparent, it actually just looks like water, and it's just the life of the people here. And for generations, you have to understand that cognac is very, very old. Our region was very well known at the time for its wine. So we were like mostly making wine in like the 13th, 14th century, and then in the in the 16th century, um, it was actually the Dutch people who would come here and get our wine, who said, wait a minute, like this wine doesn't travel very well. It doesn't keep very well. And so they decided to um, distill the wine they were buying from our region in Holland. And that's how it became brand wine. So like sort of burnt wine, brandy. It's the origin of the word brandy. And with time in the 17th century, we then realized that it was you know, more convenient 
and better to actually distill those wines locally. So our local people um, invented what we call the double distillation. So first it was distilled once, created by the Dutch, and then locally here in France, and the local people decided it, it was better distilled twice. So you have to understand that some spirits are distilled once, the particularity of cognac is that it's distilled twice. Okay. And I think that's where the whole history comes, and they called it Odvi. That's what my um, my instinct tells me, but I never truly knew what, where it comes from. What does distilling it twice do as opposed to just distilling it once? Does it increase the alcohol level or the taste? It, increase, it increases the alcohol content and it, increases, it concentrates the flavors. So imagine you start with a wine, okay? It's like 9%, 10%. You're going to distill it, and we're going to go up to 30% alcohol. And as you distill the same thing twice, right, we call it the second distillation. And once you do the second cycle, you you go up to 70 to 72% alcohol. So it's, it's increasing the alcohol, but it's increasing the aroma. So when you smell... If you ever come to do the visit here, I'd love to show you. Uh, We have samples of the different stages and you can actually smell the 30%. It's very flowery. It's very fruity. And when you smell the 70%, um, it's very different because obviously it's a lot stronger, but it's so much more concentrated. It's, 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 It's amazing. It's a true, it's a true eau de vie. It's like there's so much concentration of life in that water because you got the soil, which is very important because in our delimited area, there's a classification. There are different names according to where your cognac is made. So nothing in, nothing in France is uh, simple. Everything is complicated. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Why make it a simple one? We can make it complicated. Because I say that, you know, that we live in the Vienne, but then the Vienne is part of uh, the Nouveau Aquitaine, as you said before, and, you know, and uh, there's all these different departments and regions. But within actual the Cognac region, there are producing regions with different names. Yes. So what's yes. the differences in the Cognac from these regions? So, so in, in within Cognac, you have a map which was studied and created with a, um, a famous geologist, um, Monsieur Coquin, and uh, he studied the soil and he decided that it was better to sort of um, name each, each soil according to its particularity or to its benefits, right, into making the Cognac. So it's like a classification like where you would find the same way in the Bordeaux or in the Saint-Emilion. You know, each region has its own way of grading or classifying the soils. So ours is starts with what we call the Grand Champagne, which is called close to the city of Cognac. Um, then you go a little bit further south and expand around and you have what we call the Petit Champagne. Then you have the Fin Bois, Bon Bois, and Bois Ordinaire. So as you go like from the center to the end, you're going to go also towards the coast. And on the coast, the soil is going to be a lot less concentrated in limestone, like Grand and Petit Champagne are very well known for its limestone. And it creates, it makes very fine and elegant cognacs. As you go to the borderie, it's very flowery. And as you expand and you get closer to the sea, the soils are going to be a lot more sandy 
So um, um, only only very like high expert and technicians can actually taste and smell, but there are differences in the cognacs, whether they're in Grande, Petite, Borderie, Fembois, etc., etc. But it's very, very subtle. It's like subtle differences. You have then producers within those regions that are making different cognacs. So is... If I'm producing cognac, how is that going to be different to you if we're neighbours? Is it going to be different? Yes. So every producer first has its own identity. Because when you make the cognac, the way you're going to make your wine, the way you're going to distill, the way you're going to then age, every single person, even though we have common general rules, we can play a little bit. We can play here and then, and we can get... Eau de vies, which are more or less fruity, uh, more or less concentrated. Then we can play with the oak, with the aging. We can age it more or less um, into a medium, uh, a bigger size barrel. For example, we use 400 liter barrels. We could use smaller barrels or we could use bigger barrels. All of these different ingredients, as you move on into the process of making it, makes it different. And, and everybody has its own secrets. Like we followed the tradition from my grandfather. So, for example, when you read a cognac label, first you're going to see the brand and the image of the, the producer, right? Then you're going, to, you're going to see next to the word cognac, you're going to have the name of the soil where it comes from, like I said before. So, Grand Champagne or Petit Champagne, etc., etc. Then you have the address of the place. And each, each bottle um, will sort of tell you what quality it is. And so if it's VS, for example, you know it's a young cognac. Are you familiar with the different qualities? No, it's, but is that the, I've got here, you have terms like VS, VSOP, Napoleon and yes. XO. Is that the and qualities? I'm gonna, yes, and I'm going to talk about that because the question you asked me was about what are the differences between one producer to another, right? Well, it's going to come to that because our, for example, our cognacs are aged much longer than the average or much longer than what the minimum is required. So that is going to make a huge difference into the personality that you want to give to your cognacs, right? So let me, if you want, I can quickly explain all of those. Yes, please. Yes, absolutely. So VS stands for very special. Right. I would be a VS. <laughs> You're a very special person. If I was a cognac. <laughs> Hold on, i got to wait, exactly. actually. I want to wait and find out what Napoleon is, yes. Yeah, wait until you hear it until yeah. the end. And, okay. and then you can choose what you want. Okay. <laughs> so VS means very special. It needs to age for two years at least, okay, to be cold. Yeah. So that would be like the first cognac that you can ever find in the market, right? So a two-year-old cognac is called VS. VS is mostly for cocktails and um, blends. Like if you have a good tonic, or if you want like a Schweppes or Schweppes Agrume, you can add it into your VS and it will make an amazing cocktail. It's like an aperitif. Ours is five. So we wait a little longer because we think if you want a good cocktail, you need a little longer. After VS, you have VSOP. It stands for very special old pale. Or I have something funny for our French uh, listeners. We can also turn it into... Versé sans oublier personne. Oh, what's that mean? Poor without forgetting anyone. 
That's our little joke. That's our little joke. Okay. But VSOP means means very special old pale, and it needs to age at least four years. Ours is ten, because our VSOP is very fruity and flowery. I mean, so as other small producers like us, and we like to drink that one as a whiskey, so either over ice or very cold. Yep. Okay. So it's still an aperitif. So those are the two aperitifs you can find in the market. And as we move on, then I'm going to start talking about all cognacs that you can drink as an after dinner. Okay. So the next one is called Napoleon. It ages at least for six years to be called Napoleon and ours is 20. After Napoleon, you have Ixo. It means extra old. And that one needs to age at least 10 years. Ours is 35, so much more, much older. And then after XO, you could call any cognac as you want. You could call it Heritage. You could call it Vieille Reserve. You could call it Reserve Special. We have like several mentions of cognacs which are so, so old that you can sort of play a little bit with the words. But that's basically what you can find. Yeah. As I said, nothing simple. We have uh, regions, then we have producers, and then we have uh, labels to work out what they are. This is fabulous. But I think that the, the, the easiest thing to remember is, are you going to drink a cognac for the aperitif or are you going to drink it as an after dinner? Oui. Right? Oui. Okay. Oui. And then, and then you, you remember, VS, VSOP for aperitif and Napoleon oui. XO, or you now even have XXO for digestive. For after this. Fabulous. Are you coming to France soon for a holiday or weekend away? Or do you have plans to, or dreaming of it, but just don't know what to do? Are you just overwhelmed with all the options? Or been so many times before, you want to take a new look on France and places to go, people to see? Well, I can help you with that. Jump on my website, andrewpriorfabulously.com, and check out my itinerary service. You can book in a 45-minute Zoom call with me That's right, live with me directly. And then once we discuss what you want to do, how long you're coming for and where you'd really want to go to, I'll create a fabulous itinerary personalized just for you. I'll help with places to go, things to do, hidden secrets, tips that a local would know, restaurants, food recommendations, as well as help with any bookings, etc. that you might need during your stay. So what are you waiting for? Go to andrewpriorfabulously.com itinerary services and book in your call with me now what's the history or origin story for cognac is it very old you mentioned then about the dutch taking things back but is that where it came from region goes back into the the 12th the 13th century but the making of the cognac is more toward the towards the 16th century yeah, because um, it, as I said, it's like the Dutch who actually like brought that um, the, the 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 technique of the distilling was brought up by the Dutch in the 16th century. How many producers of cognac are there now? Oh gosh, um, that's a really good question. Um, there are 266 um, producing um, companies. That doesn't mean that they all put everything they make into a bottle. Let me explain. You could have vines and you could, you know, work on your your grapes, press, make your wine, distill and then age. But you could sell 100% of your production to a big cognac house. You don't necessarily put 
your cognac into the bottle with your own branding. There are a lot of those producers who sell 100% of what they make to Hennessy, Rémi Martin, Courvoisier, Otard, Martel, all of the big, big cognac houses. And then you have some of them, like us, who will keep a little percentage of our own production to continue aging in our own cellars and then put it in our own bottles under our own brand. So 90% of what we produce is actually sold into Hennessy. So we give a lot to the Hennessy market and then only 10% goes into our marque Bertrand. Is uh, cognac mainly drunk in France or is it exported? Mainly exported, at least 95-97% is exported, is huge, huge. Um, uh, the United States uh, is one of the big, big importers of cognacs. Um, then you have the uh, Asia, uh, used to be like a big one, and is still, but it's not as big as the United States. And then you have um, uh, Belgium, um, the UK is increasing its... Um, uh, t uh, tasting of cognac because they like it more and more. You have Germany, um, you have lots of countries. It's really going around the world these days. It, it's really like really well known and renowned. What would be, if, uh, if you're having it in a cocktail as an aperitif, what would be the most famous or drink that we would know that we would have cognac in? Actually, there was, they did um, a competition and they put together a lot of bartenders to create that one cocktail that would be well known around the world. And it's a co cocktail which is called the Summit. And it's really, really tasty. It's really exotic. It has ginger and lemon and lemonade and cognac. It is just an amazing. If anybody would like the recipe, it's online. If you just call, if you just type, Cognac Summit, and it's so easy to do. Um, I, I'm, I'm telling you, when I've made it at home and I have guests, it's always, always like an impressive drink. People really like it. Fabulous. I'm going to put that one on the list, and yes. I'll also find a recipe for it and put it in the show notes for this episode. Absolutely. Thank you. How is uh, you can use it in cooking? How is it used in cooking usually? So, cognac, as the, at least as a childhood, I always saw. My grandmother, um, how do you say, flambé? Oui, the, the like, flambé, oui, yeah, yes, yes. Flambé yes. with cognac yes. is like, you can't get any better than that. When you have like fish, shrimp, and you want a flambé with a young cognac, that we would put that. Also, um, you would use young cognacs um, for adding into like meat sauces. It gives really, really nice flavor. Um, and then it's mostly used for... Um, uh, as, as a drink, as an aperitif or as a digestive. Now, you've mentioned the family business a few times. So what is the, the vineyard called or your um, cognac called again? So it, it, most places here, you have the name of the place and the name of the family. So we are called Famille Bertrand. So we kept that as Cognac Bertrand. And then the name of the place is Domaine des Brissons de l'Age, but we are known as Cognac Bertrand. Uh, you might have mentioned this before, but I wanted to ask, so how long have you actually been producing cognac then? Were, you, were your grandparents producing cognac? Oh, yes. So the interesting thing is like we both my grandmother and my grandfather come from cognac producers. Ah, right. Okay. So did they combine? Yes. Then? They did. Absolutely. So they combined two domains, the Domaine des Brissons and the Domaine de l'Age. And... Um, 
here right now, uh, where we, we have most of the production, it's now called Domaine des Brissons de l'Age. So we joined both names and both domains. So we have about, we have about 100 hectares of vines. Were they all in the same region, though? Yes, they are. are so they we right? are. Okay. This is what we called a single estate. It means okay. that all of the production is in Petite Champagne. Because you could have, right? You could have vines in Grand Champagne or vines in Petit Champagne, like you could have vines in the different soils. Uh, but ours is 100% Petit Champagne. And some of ours sit in a very beautiful hill, which is next to our windmill. And you can see all of the different windmills along the, the hills. And at the bottom of the hill is a very famous road, which used to be the Roman road. This is ah. really cool. Yeah. Yeah, okay. See, this is why your Italian maybe should have been a bit better if the Roman road yeah. was going through Italian. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so your grandparents, did they take it over from their family? Like how long yes, has this sorry. been in the family, family uh, business? Yes, absolutely. So my grandfather's parents were already making cognac and my grand. Uh, uh, my grandmother's uh, parents also were making cognac. So it, it was coming from their families. But we, we traced back our family, at least from the Bertrand side, since 1731. So that dates, that's really, really far back. The only difference I would say with the big brands is that the selling of cognac in a bottle came much later. It came in the 19th century. Because in the old days, the trading was done mostly in barrels. Like my grandmother tells me that she would go with her father into the Bordeaux, the city of Bordeaux. She would travel there with her dad and she would take like small barrels and they would deliver the small barrel of cognacs into each restaurant. And that's how the sales used to be made. Yeah, amazing. Amazing to think that there was so much drunk as well. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really cool story, like in the old days when we didn't have cars, um, my grandfather used to go to the city of Cognac. There's a place there, which is a restaurant still now, and it's called the Coq d'Or. And it's the place where most of the Cognac trading used to be made. So they would go in the morning and all of the different producers would sit and wait at the bottom. The head people would discuss with the Imagine like one of the big brands buying from the smaller producers. They would negotiate the price and they, they would then announce in the balcony the big price to all of, all of the smaller producers and then the trading would happen. But because it was not a car, because it was like, you know, one of those horse carts, you would always have to go with someone because you would go with full barrels, but then you would come back with your pockets full of money. And then the robbers would be waiting after the woods to, to rob and take the, your money. So you always had to go like in good company to defend yourself in case you were going to be robbed. <laughs> On the way back. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> um, what makes your family, uh, Cognac, different to other, others? Um, I would say because we don't do, um, even though we have a lot, uh, like a, a medium-sized production company, because we sell most of it to Hennessy, we only age such few amounts um, that our cognac is older than the average. And of course, it makes it a little bit, a little bit more artisanal. And when you taste it, the cognac, the older it gets, the less aggressivity you're going to have on the pilot and it's going to be more round and smooth. I would say that our cognacs are 
generally very old. So they're actually quite uh, pleasant on the palate. They don't have that sort of fiery aggressivity on the mouth. So I would say that would be our identity. And also, since my husband and I have been taking over, we, we like to give the visitors like a full experience. Like we like to teach how the product is made before they actually taste it. And once you learn all the history and all the, the, the time that it takes, you sort of enjoy the product in a different way. And the experience of tasting is as important as the, as the knowledge of learning how to make it, right? But it, it makes it like a nice experience. Can we come and actually visit the, um, the vineyard? And if so, what's, what's that experience like for a visitor, for a tourist coming through? Um, yes, you can actually come and visit uh, our estate. We have um, developed like two different styles of tours. We have a tour which is called Le, La Visite Classique, the classic tour, which takes an hour. And then we have another one which takes two hours, which goes a bit more into details. And our objective is to just to really truly share our passion with the visitor and the visitor, what they want is just to truly get to know you and to understand what you do. So we just take them, we explain who we are, we actually give anecdotes about our family, we tell them how we got here, um, we show them uh, the distillery, so we explain how the distillery works. We also have a panel which they can visually see all the amount of physical work that um, this requires throughout the year, like through the seasons. Um, and then we also take them to the aging cellars where they can actually smell from the barrel the different cognacs. And we finish with uh, tasting. And sometimes we also go to the vineyards to show a little bit the, the, the vines and how they're grown and how we work at them and et cetera. So it's like a full-on experience. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, you can come with your family or your friends. And it's a fun thing to do if you're in the region. I would really recommend it. Um, whether it's us or even like one of the big cognac houses, it's nice to do both because you really truly see like the two sides of the worlds of cognac and both are together, right? We need the big ones and the big ones need us. Like there's a nice, there's a nice uh, vibe into that. Where can people find uh, you if they want to see, see um, find out some more information? Yep, they can uh, follow our Instagram account, which is at Cognac Bertrand. Um, they can uh, search into our um, uh, site internet, our internet website, uh, Cognac Bertrand. Um, they can look uh, for us on Facebook too. Um, it, it's very easy. You, 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 you type Cognac Bertrand, Bertrand with a D at the end, and you'll find us mostly on Instagram. I'd say that might be the easier way. Fabulous. I will put all of that information in Thank the you very much. this episode for you. Teresa, finally, the question that I ask everybody that's been on Fabulously Delicious, and that is, what's the most fabulous thing about France to you? Oh, there are so many different things. It's hard to really summarize it in one. I would say the life quality, and the life quality can have many, many things inside. It's for me. It's the scenery because I live in a beautiful area. It's the food and the and the and the wine. That's the cognac for us, of course. But I also love wine, so it's all in one. It's it's the quality of life. I think the way we live here, I think, is the right way to live. It's 
you work, but you also enjoy your free time, you drink and you eat accordingly, obviously without abusing, but but you really truly enjoy um, um, when you cook, you know, you cook and you enjoy what you make. When you go out to a restaurant, they, there's wonderful food. There's just like savoir vivre à la française. That would summarize it all. That. Fabulous. Well, in Australia, seeing as though we're only, I think you're only about an hour, an hour and a half's drive away, uh, that would practically make us neighbours in Australia. So I yes. can't wait to come down and visit. You're very welcome. And see some of that amazing scenery and the area down there and also to try your amazing cognac. Teresa Bertrand, thank you for joining us on Fabulously Delicious today. Thank you very much for having me. It has been uh, delighted and I'm very excited to have been here. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup. We'll see you soon. Bye, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. All the details of Teresa's Cognac House is in the show notes of this episode, so please do go visit them when you're visiting Cognac next. That's it for another fabulous episode. Next week, we are exploring the wine region of the Long Languedoc. Languedoc? Languedoc? I hope I've pronounced that correctly. We will see. We'll check it out in next week's episode. Merci beaucoup and see you next week. Bon app. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.